Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. For me, the very best Onion article of 2018 was this one about Jeff Bezos revealing Amazon's new headquarters to be the entire Earth as an Amazon-branded glass sphere clicked into place, encasing forever the horrified inhabitants of our planet. More than a grain of truth in that one, eh? At this point, with all that's happened over the past few years, I think you either have to be delusionally optimistic by nature or have strong vested interests in the tech industry to think that all is well in our digital world. Douglas Rushkoff has been looking at these problems with unflinching clarity and humor since long before the rest of us heard the click of the big glass sphere. On his podcast, Team Human, and in his new book of the same name, he invites the rest of us humans to team up, find the others, and stand up for weird, messy humanity against this anti-human agenda. Welcome back to Think Again, Douglas. Hey, thanks for having me. Essentially, we sort of need to dismantle everything, right? It feels as if our choice is to go back somehow. And right. if you go back, go back how far? So if we're, if part of the problem is that we realize that media and technologies that we develop um, end up being used against us, that we start out as the player and end up being the played, right? We start right. out as the programmer and end up being the programmed, then we want to go back. But say you go back when? To television? Well, television became programming. Radio? Well, that became, you know, Hitler in China. Do you go back? Or uh, the invention of text? Well, Text was used to categorize and quantify slaves. Right. So we go back to language itself. Well, once we had language, we started to abstract things that that things became nouns. And once they were nouns, they were restricted. So we're going to go back to grunt. How far? You can't go back enough, and then you're just going to be a one-celled amoeba. And we can you probably know? agree that, there, that, <laughs> That's not that the... there really probably was no like Edenic past in which exactly. everything was absolutely wonderful and no, you know, there wasn't. and communal. But at the same time, if you take this kind of everything just pedal to the metal, move forward, right. more technology, more stuff, you end up in this kind of steroidal crescendo that we're about to go into now. And it's worse and worse and worse because of, you know, Silicon Valley and the VC culture and the sort of 10x mentality of right. like things are happening at scale in such a way that they can just totally, you know, create essentially new virtual countries, redefine right. entire industries, disintermediate everybody from their jobs. Right, like, wipe all the nutrients from the topsoil or whatever it is. In at, like five at, minutes. At breakneck speed. Yeah, yeah. So I think that what we end up having to do, though, then, is we want to retrieve the values that are most human and important to us and then embed them in the digital future. Don't go blindly forward. Don't go backwards, you know, in some Unabomber fantasy of the past, but figure out what are the things we're leaving behind? What are we concerned about that we don't see? What do we already feel? How has the humanity and care been removed from business, from politics, from education? And how do we retrieve them? And then you just do it one thing at a time. You know, I find myself again and again as I read your book and as I read your previous book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, you know, again and again, I'm just like, yes, yes, I agree with these values. I see and feel like everybody I know, people who grew up in my generation with you can be anything you want to and the world is your oyster because we finally arrived at that point. I see this situation that we're in where like people are scraping to get by and where everyone is having to contort themselves into these weird pseudo entities on social media to communicate and brand themselves. I see it, all of it. And I, probably like you, connect with the others that I know, you know, my friends, the people online that I've met, the ones that I trust. But I'm still, we're still in this thing. We're on a podcast. It exists you know, on the basis of other products that Big Think makes, but it's not indefinitely sustainable in this ecosystem. It won't be here forever if something else doesn't happen. And we're in a world where a lot of the good things are in that, in jeopardy that well, way. Right, I mean, I guess it's hard to know, are you in your well-intentioned way just adding a little credibility and humanity to an ultimately dehumanizing big business evil process, whether it's not Big Think itself, but the, the world that Big Think exists in and promoting the net and these companies and traffic yeah, and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Or are we getting to do what we really want? Are we leveraging this giant monolith, multi-trillion dollar industry to now seed the world with 
some good human ideas. I have to believe it's the latter because as long as what you're doing and you know what you're doing is primarily grounded in these kind of pro-human, pro-social ideals, then it's all good. I guess I don't see what I don't imagine happening is from the pro-social, pro-human ideals, from these seeds. If you imagine this giant monolithic world of digital corporations that we're now living in as some kind of Death Star sort of situation, I don't see the greening of that whole thing happening on at scale. I do see that thing potentially collapsing under its own weight. And that those of us who have been greening in the background will then be called upon, we're going to need farmers. <laughs> we're going to need people who understand, well, look at all this dead dirt. How do we turn it into soil again? You yeah. know, and hopefully there'll be a few indigenous people left who are like, oh, well, <laughs> we tried this. Um, there's also the possibility that what I was hoping is just that people get so nauseous and bored in what they're doing that they start looking for these cool, fun, weird, wet spots that we're creating, you know? <laughs> the stuff that they used to avoid is actually, oh no, this is cool. And you do see it. It's funny, I was tremendously inspired by David Lynch's Twin Peaks revival okay. on Showtime to think that, wow, he somehow got them to spend this money on this thing that said everything and said nothing. It accomplished none of what prestige TV is supposed to. There was no IP. There were no spoilers. You know, right, Netflix right, 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 lives right. for these spoilers. You got to see episode 12. It was just like, no, you're going to watch someone sweeping the floor of a bar for five minutes. And you got to say that that's sort of what David Lynch has always miraculously managed to do. His movies almost never follow any kind of traditional arc. They leave us in these, you know, embedded in these deep, abstract moments. <laughs> it's funny. They do well enough for him to get to to do it. He got Showtime to do it. Who knows why they did it? Yeah, yeah, Maybe, yeah, yeah. you know, it's a lost leader for something else. And, you yeah, know, who knows? Yeah, right, right. But I'm in a strange place now because, I mean, I'm bigger now than I was 20 years ago. But when I was writing books about, oh, here's the internet that's going to happen. Here's where we're going. This mm. is viral media and all that. I would get on everything. You know, I'd get on all the NPR shows and Colbert and Daily Show and this and that. When I write now that I'm writing a book that's saying, no, 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 this is bottom up, that life doesn't actually happen at scale. Life happens in your body and connected with other people right. and all that. I've got more email and more interest from humans in this book than anything I've ever done. But Less interest from top-down media than deafening silence from even from NPR and all that. And it's because on a certain level, these institutions kind of can't recognize the thing that we're talking about, right? I'm not part of the neoliberal Clintonian thing. I'm not quite dark web either, you know, and I'm not. So what is this? Where does it fit? What is it? But I think it's important for us to realize, well, even if you don't get the traditional institutional recognition. What's real is, are you touching other people and changing lives and, right. and helping galvanize a movement of people who want to reclaim this reality for humans? My concern is that with these gigantic systems, if they persist at the scale that they're at and, and continue growing, then the ability for people to make a living to survive while doing these things that we're talking about becomes increasingly difficult. I mean, how or do you it ends live? up being your the thing that actually matters ends up being your hobby rather than your job. That's what I'm saying. And when it is your hobby, you start to feel like, well, if your parents know about it, they know that, oh, that's just crazy Doug doing his thing. At least he's got a job. You know, we want a world where people can do the beautiful things, live a sustainable life. You don't need that much. You don't need giant mansions. The email and conversation I'm having with a lot of, you know, my team human listeners, a lot of them have small businesses. Like there's a woman with a solar powered sourdough bakery in Vermont. Okay. And she's trying to just make it sustainable. And it's really, really hard. So she has one of her, you know, she's got like four or five workers. One of them is going to have a baby. So she wants to do maternity leave. And the way the laws are set up, it's really hard for her to give an appropriate maternity leave because then she's got to start paying tax and doing weird payroll stuff. And it's so hard to stay at her sustainable size. If she grew, then maybe. 
it would work, but she doesn't want to grow and she doesn't shouldn't have to grow in order <laughs> to do what she and, does. And in order to do the things that are human and that are humanistic, we can't be exhausted and stretched butter thin all the time. And most of the people I know who work in education, who work in the arts, who work in these humanizing arenas, that's where they're at. You right. know, no, I am, they I don't am have myself. it left over to right. be creative, you know. Now, as the book industry got harder and harder, and I realized I would have to either write how-to business books on one way or in one level or another. They have to be business self-help books. If I'm not going to do that, then so I had to go, and it's fine, I had to go get a university professor job. So okay. I wrote a dissertation, right. got my, it was a long trip, you know, got my PhD, and I teach at CUNY, so okay. it feels more real to me, like uh, I'm not just a privileged person teaching at <laughs> school, but I'm actually making a difference there. But that's a full-time, real job, yeah. working with kids who's, you know, have a student who couldn't make class because he had to get his mom into a different shelter, you right. know? Right. <laughs> you know? And it's yeah. like, oh, shoot, yeah. this is real, it's work. And at the same time, then I'm out there here in the uh, battle of ideas, trying to compete on equal footing with the people who are getting big money for books about big money topics. Right. I it's heard hard. you refer to yourself as a um, freelance intellectual. That you know, this is not ancient Greece. We are not Socrates walking right. around the streets. I mean, of course, he was made to swallow hemlock, but, you know, at the end of it. Yeah. But one of those guys had slaves and prostitutes and everything else. That, right. I mean, there it was that propping they that had up. A, yeah, they had a society that propped that up on some level. Which actually brings me to something, like, because I was getting into this kind of conversation online recently, and my father chimed in, and he was like, well, I doubt that there was any time ever in history or society where the arts or the humanities or these soft humanizing things were where it was easy to make a living. It may not. That's have been, a little hard to. There was with. more of a the folk arts were more integrated into people's daily lives. I mean, you can still walk around Rome in the evening and you see people out playing their own music, kids dancing in the street, old ladies sitting there, lovers kissing. And it's like, what is, what is this place? You know, it right, was so right, right. weird. And that's, if anything, that's what capitalism wants to eradicate because all of the, these people are out of the marketplace. Wait a minute. They're not watching TV. They're not doing, and where, why do they have time to do this? Why aren't they working? I got published in France and I went, you know, to do the book tour thing there and I'm with my editor and we're at the, you know, doing a bunch of media. And then she says, let's go for lunch. And we walked back to her apartment and she cut open bread and made like a tuna sandwich or something. Which like, like would never happen. They walk here. home for lunch. They right. walk home because right. they work, you know, because they don't have cars or whatever. They just walk home for lunch. She's like, oh my God. Oh, it's like four o'clock. Let's rest. And then you're out till friggin' midnight. It's crazy. But um, so no, it wasn't business of arts all the time. You right. know, you know the gypsy dancers and the flamenco and folk art was a part of their world, more like in Bali or someplace where the arts is integrated with society. It's not some professional thing. You don't become right. Britney or, or Taylor. And in America, it also feels like the arts having been professionalized to the extent that they are, for most people in society, they're sort of a medicine that you're like, if you swallow it, you're forced to swallow it. It's not just for most people a natural, enjoyable right. part of life. And like, because it feels, if you're really good, I say you're a really good guitar player, and you're at a party with, let's just say there's parties and things. Remember parties? You're at parties and you whip out you the guitar. You bust out the guitar, yeah. And you start doing all this great, great, great stuff on it. The question you'll be asked is, well, why didn't you? Right. What's wrong? Right. Why didn't you make it? What is making it? What is? What does that mean? And yet, at the same time, everyone has to survive. So either those people are either people who want to make art and want that to not be some hobby that they're doing yeah. on the side are somehow subsidized or there's an avenue for them to do that, which I think would be an ideal society, because we need these things where it's not just like two artists who can make make a living. There's a difference between contemplating the utopian ideal of a relationship okay. between arts, commerce, existence and all, and managing this all hands on deck moment right. in the arc of civilization, where we're actually looking at you know strong possibilities of species extinction or uh, civilization collapse on the level where 
you know, optimistic appraisals are, well, look, I think we can save a billion of us. Right. You know? right. <laughs> it's serious stuff. So at that point, it's more a matter, I think, of just getting people to value their humanity and to start not just looking at our humanness as an opportunity for corporate exploit, you know, right. or how are we going to teach an algorithm to exploit that or this or the other? There are people, or at least algorithms, listening to everything we're saying about humans right now and saying, oh, okay, I can get them through Ex that. Right. I can exploit that. Oh, they want to see, eye they want eye contact. Okay, <laughs> the avatars are going to do eye contact now, or uh, algorithms are going to recreate the experience of eye contact if that's what creates a sense of rapport in people, because we need to simulate rapport in order to extract Right. you know, data or money from people. I mean, I guess it should be pointed out that attaching humanness solely to the arts, as I've been doing, like, isn't, we should be focused on the value of humanity in, in everything that we do, which is not solely the arts. Right. I mean, it's <laughs> in business. Yeah. You know, people don't look at their human employees as the value in the company. Right. They look at the technologies and the IP that they have, you know, and they think that the humans are the most replaceable part. And I get it. That's a legacy of the industrial age where you wanted the cheapest labor possible. You go to the Home Depot parking lot, train them in 15 minutes right. so you can fire them right away. But it's the only possible competitive advantage you're going to have is not just the individual people you have, but the processes and ways those people have of interacting. The kind of team that you've put together is what you have. And that means also, I think, knowing people beyond the thing that they do within your organization, being aware of and present with them as their lives are unfolding, as their children are being born, as these things are happening, which many workplaces seem to kind of abstract out of the picture. I know. It was funny. When the uh, when those billionaires were asking me um, how to maintain control of their security staff after the apocalypse, you know, right, in, their, in their bunkers, I started telling them, I said, well, why don't you start treating them really nice now? In other words, pay for like their kid's bar mitzvah or something. If you're really there for them now, right. then they'll potentially be there for you when the stuff hits a fan. That depends on being actually able to recognize them as the same kind of thing that you are, which is extremely difficult when there are these just massive economic gaps, you know, when some people right. are sitting on $2 billion and then my life is just nothing like yours. Kind it of is thing. a different like, thing. It is know? funny, you know, because I've gotten to sit on planes or have meetings with billionaire people. And then I go home and like start filling out the insurance, health insurance reimbursement form for, right, you know, right, right. my daughter's visit to the whatever. And uh, I think, well, gosh. He doesn't have to do, he's not doing, I had, I had lunch with Matt Stone from South Park, who's also got, you know, like $700 million or something from all that. And I was just thinking, Matt Stone's not filling out reimbursement forms. And, right. and it's like these people, they, they do live a different, a different life, you know, and that's true, much more different than when the factory owner lived in the same town with all the other people. His kid went to the same school. He just happens to live in a larger house up on the hill right. rather than those little houses down in the valley. I mean, could you imagine if every Silicon Valley executive's kids went to the same schools as the people who are cleaning the offices? That's a different society right there. You really, everyone has a choice. It's like, do you want to try to earn enough money to insulate yourself from the world you're creating by earning money in that way? Or do you want to spend your time and effort making the world a place that you don't need to insulate yourself from? You know, it's right. the former is a losing battle. You you will, in the <laughs> end, you will destroy. You'll end up in a bunker under New Zealand right. and then that's not a lot of fun, Right, is it? and the guy in the bunker <laughs> under New Zealand is not going to make it either. You know, in the end, right. his security force will turn on him unless he's got the robots, uh, <laughs> uh, robot guards by then. You know, they will turn on him because um, that's that's how history works. If you're a dictator and the and, and the only thing keeping you in charge is your are your generals, your generals will take over. That's a perfect punctuation to follow with the second half of the show, which is yeah. where we're going to look at these surprise quips that okay. were chosen from Big Things Archives, and they'll just be conversation starters that'll probably bring us back to some of the same things and cool. maybe onto some new things. Okay, so this is author Johan Hari, and it says, the one factor causing depression and anxiety in the workplace. 
I learned about nine causes of depression and anxiety for which there's scientific evidence, which opens up a whole different set of solutions. But I'll just give you a very quick example of one. I noticed that lots of the people I know who are depressed and anxious, their depression and anxiety focuses around their work. So I started looking at, well, how do people feel about their work? What's going on here? Gallup did the most detailed study that's ever been done on this. What they found is 13% of us like our work most of the time. 63% of us are what they called sleepwalking through our work. We don't like it, we don't hate it, we tolerate it. 24% of us hate our jobs. So you think about that, 87% of people in our culture don't like the thing they're doing most of the time. They did send their first work email at 7.48 a.m. and clock off at 7.15 p.m. on average. Most of us don't wanna be doing it. Could this have a relationship to our mental health? I started looking for the best evidence on this and I discovered an amazing Australian social scientist called Michael Marmot, who I got to know, who discovered, and the story of how he discovered it is amazing, but I'll give you the headline. He discovered the key factor that makes us depressed and anxious at work. If you go to work and you feel controlled, you feel you have few or limited choices, you are significantly more likely to become depressed or actually even more likely to have a stress-related heart attack. And this is because of one of the things that connects so many of the causes of depression and anxiety I learned about. Everyone watching this knows that you have natural physical needs, right? You need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took them away from you, you would be in trouble real fast, right? There's equally strong evidence that we have natural psychological needs. You've got to feel you belong. You've got to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You've got to feel that people see you and value you. You've got to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And if human beings are deprived of those psychological needs, they will experience extreme forms of distress. Our culture is good at lots of things. We're getting less and less good at, at meeting people's deep underlying psychological needs. And this is one of the key factors why depression is rising. And that opens, just to finish the point about work, that opens up a very different way of thinking about how we solve these problems, right? So if control at work is driving, is one of the drivers of this depression and anxiety epidemic, so I think, well, what would be an antidepressant for that, right? What would solve that? In Baltimore, I met a woman called Meredith Keogh. who's part of an amazing transformation. Meredith used to go to bed every Sunday night, just sick with anxiety. She had an office job. It wasn't the worst office job in the world. She wasn't being bullied, but, but she couldn't bear the thought that this monotony was gonna be the next 40 years of her life, most of her life. And one day Meredith did an experiment with her husband, Josh. <clears throat> Josh had worked in bike stores since he was a teenager. Again, it's insecure, controlled work, as you can imagine. And one day, Josh and his friends in the bike store just asked themselves, what, what does our boss actually do? They liked their boss. He wasn't a particularly bad guy. But they thought, well, we fix all the bikes. They didn't like this feeling of having a boss. They decided to do something different. So Meredith quit her job. Josh and his friends quit their jobs. They set up a bike store that works on a different, older principle. It's a democratic cooperative, not a corporation. So the way it works is there is no boss. They take the decisions together democratically by voting. They share out the good tasks and the bad tasks. They share the profits. And one of the things that was so interesting to me, going there, which is completely in line with Professor Marmot's findings, is how many of them talked about how depressed and anxious they'd been when they worked in a controlled environment, and they weren't depressed and anxious. Now, now it's important to say, it's not like they quit their jobs fixing bikes and went to become like, I don't know, Beyonce's backing singers, right? They fixed bikes before, they fixed bikes now, but they dealt with the factor that causes depression and anxiety. As Josh put it to me, there's no reason why any business should be run in this top-down, depressogenic, humiliating way, right? I have two main reactions to that. Yeah. One, what he's talking about is the difference between work and employment. Right. So I wrote a lot about this in other books, a little bit in, in Team Human. The, the way that um, in the late Middle Ages, there, there was a rising merchant middle class of people making stuff and selling stuff. There was a marketplace. Right. It was right after the Crusades and trade routes were opened up and the market was really, the idea of the market was taken from the bazaar that they saw in, in Arab countries. And the poor, the peasants became the middle class and the aristocracy was getting poor. Right. So they invented the chartered monopoly. And what the monopoly was, was the king saying, you're not allowed to have these little businesses anymore. You have to work for his, you know, his majesty's royal shoe company. So the guy that was the shoemaker is now an employee of a shoe company. So rather than selling the value, the shoes that he created, he's selling his time. Right. That's when we put the clock up on the tower in the middle of the in the middle of the town and all of a sudden you're a wage 
laborer and you have a boss. So yeah, you were intentionally disconnected from the value that you're creating. And all of a sudden you get the kind of psychological stress and sense of disconnection and alienation that he's talking about. The second thing it makes me think about is the difference between our value as, as humans and our utilitarian value as workers. Right. There's a great book by, um, you don't have to read it, but uh, by Horkheimer, one of the Frankfurt group, sure. called The Eclipse of Reason. Okay. And in it, he distinguishes between kind of reason with a capital R, which is the reason you're doing something, and little reasons, small r, which is sort of the more utilitarian reason you're doing it. Right. And what you get, if you love bikes and making people happy and the reason you're in the bike store, yeah, you're making a living doing it, but you are part of promoting biking and helping people get their gears and their stuff in order. It's your mission as sure. a group of people. And that you can have the thing that's binding you or bonding you together is your shared sense of big R reason. What is the reason that we're doing this? Right. And that is, of course, it's going to be engendered by a cooperative, which is what, you know, me and Trevor Schultz and Nathan Schneider, we've been arguing for the last, you know, five, six years in the platform cooperative movement, that instead of building these platform monopolies like Amazon, which are just the digital version of British East India trading company and the sure. original charter monopolies, what if we use digital to create a new kind of cooperative? where everybody is an owner of this thing. I mean, people are, are there, afraid of it. Are there any examples of at all of people doing that? Well, look at the difference between, say, like, I mean, there's some really old, great ones. There's mm, Ace Hardware mm. is a cooperative. Associated Press is a cooperative. Uh, Publix Grocery Stores is a cooperative. So everyone who works at AP like has shares of AP? Is yeah. That right? Okay. That's a reporter-owned news agency. Right. And it does change the way... I mean, they can get so big and bureaucratic and systemic sometimes that they lose their way. But certainly, if you're trying to do a small business, it's way easier to have a cooperative. But you're going to have to pick or find a group of people that really want to stick with this thing. You don't join a cooperative right. for six months and then move on. This is not, you know, Reed Hoffman, the uh, LinkedIn guy. Right. It's not his vision of employment, which is that everybody is a gig worker, that you do these 12 to 18 month campaigns as, you know, the right. brand manager of Colgate and then move on. It doesn't work like that. So what would a cooperative social media platform look like? It would depend on <laughs> what the people joining together to create that platform want, want to do. Yeah. You know, what did... Mark Zuckerberg want to do by starting Facebook? I'm not sure. I think originally he wanted to create an easy way for guys to see if a girl was hot or not yes. <laughs> before uh, knocking on their freshman dorm room door. Correct. Um, and that isn't necessarily the best starting place for the most powerful social medium yet invented. I saw a, converse, a thread on Twitter that I thought was smart where someone was saying, well, okay, in light of everything that you're hearing now about Facebook who's getting off the platform? And a bunch of people were like, ah, I already been off it for a while and I've never made a better decision. I'm leaving tomorrow. And a lot of other people were like, eh, all these people that are living in foreign countries that I have no, like they're all in one place. I, I like it. So let's say we wanted that. We want something like that, you know, and we don't want it to kind of make our lives more shallow. So what we're looking for out of that is connection then it doesn't have to even be a business. It's just sustainable, like Wikipedia. It's sustainable by people just yeah, kind of doing I it. Yeah, I mean, we used to have this, you know, internet. Right, <laughs> right. You know, you're asking for a master <laughs> domain name registry for humans rather than just websites. Right. It's not rocket science. I think it's a public utility, really, more than it right. is something else or a global utility. The trick is... We live in a world with some large nefarious players. So the idea of everyone being findable isn't in everybody's best interests necessarily. But yeah, it would be pretty easy to have an opt-in global right. phone book right. that would maintain a certain kind of privacy. And yeah, you could do it with like more of a tour network sort of a thing and have it all be distributed. And if that's what people want. I'm currently more focused on trying to engage with my community, with the people where I live. It's funny, someone um, 
down the block from me. He sent me a text message yesterday saying, are you having a, uh, a book party here for your book launch? Are you right. doing it? It's the, almost the last thing I want is to have a book party in my town. My book is an industrial age invention, which is great for reaching hundreds of thousands of people. In my town, it's not like I don't want to be Doug Rushkoff, the author, thinker, person in my town, but I don't. I want to be Doug Rushkoff, the guy who lives up in that house. So it was weird. I mean, it's not like it was wrong, but it, it made me think about the difference between the different scales on which we interact with the world. Are those two modes necessarily incompatible? You're trying to, you know, you want to connect locally and individually and in a kind of like communitarian, you know, in, with your community where you are. On the other hand, you are also trying to, and you see the value in reaching millions of people. You're writing books, right? So these kinds of values that you're talking about and these kinds of like ways of changing behavior that you're writing about to make the world better, to make our lives better, you know, everyone just kind of doing that one by one in their community is one thing, and they're, but there's also a place, is there not, for doing that on a larger scale? Right, well, I mean, that's in some, in some ways, that's why I have to stop writing books. Because it's not that it's hypocritical, but at a certain point, you have to get off the stage and make room for others. Okay. You know, and I mean, that's why I do my podcast, Team Human, is about using, okay, I've got this amount of celebrity or attention. What do I use it for? To get attention to other people for what they're doing. Right. You know, right, right. and that's why usually the people who are on my podcast are people who have, uh, usually, they have less kind of fame in an audience than I do rather than more because mm -hmm. what do they need me for in that you know right, or right, at right. least it's a um a way to say okay all these conversations that I get to have because of whatever my credentials are or because I get behind certain velvet ropes that others don't I want to make those public at least if I got to be me I want to get I want to let everyone else get what I get for being me. So for you, though, it will, it is, or at least for the foreseeable future, it's still about promoting the ideas and promoting the experiments that others are. I mean, your podcast and the book Team Human and the ideas themselves are, in a sense, an experiment. But rather than creating networks of your own, rather than going out and trying, I mean, you are creating networks, but rather than starting collective organizations of some kind. Well, that's like, the weird thing. So, yeah. you know, a really common email I get or request through the show is that I should be starting a movement, be this leader. Oh, let's do a Team Human website, you know, Team Human articles, Team Human this and that and the other. I mean, your book says, you know, find the others on the back. It feels yeah. like a movement. It is a manifesto, right. as you said, you know. Right. But I don't want it to be a turned inward. It's not find the others and bring them into my Team <laughs> right, Human right, thing. Right, right, right. It's, I want it to be facing outward. Right. So how do you take something, you know, an idea from here and apply it in your world? You know, it's too, I understand people want a safe place. So they go, okay, Team Human, Rushkoff, I like what he's saying. And maybe the other people who are resonating with that, we can all gather and do a Team Human conference, a Team Human convention, a Team Human this. I think people legitimately, given, as you said, the big scary forces that exist in the world, want the collective bargaining power or the whatever, the strength of being a community at right. scale. You know, they want to take the goodness, amplify it into a definitive organism so that they feel that they have a chance collectively against these, you know, monolithic forces. And I guess... My concern is that if I put a boundary around it and institutionalize it, then it's just another thing, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, that's how you're reminding me of the way the Occupy people were talking. Right. Their skepticism of leaders and of, you know. Institutional. Yeah, yeah. You know, because then what happens is the energy becomes so much about how do I maintain the thing? Right. You know, right. it's like and the synagogue, the, the synagogue we, problem. Yeah. They get into real estate and all of a sudden it's about their building, <laughs> you know? And it's like, well, wait a minute. I thought you just had Torah. Can't we just read this thing and talk about it? Right. So yeah. I don't know. I, I would... I, they, I, might, they might force you and push you into being the reluctant leader of this nation, you know? You may, <laughs> Team Human Nation. Yeah, um. <laughs> whatever it is. I mean, you may be like, I don't want to, I don't want to, and they might keep coming at you. Like, come on, man. I'm yeah. fine for someone else to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? That's the thing. I'm not a community organizer. Mm. I'm not of this. I'm mm. not of that. Mm. If someone came to me and said, look, 
we want to start doing team human conferences. Mm. And the, Gig isn't, as grandma would say, go do it. That's great. Go for it. You know, if they said that I have to f somehow figure out how to organize people into those things, I would say, I don't know that that's... That's a job you don't want. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know that I don't know that I've signed up for it, particularly when, as you know, I had a great talk with Fred Turner on, on my podcast, particularly when there are existing mechanisms for people to make the world a better place. There are so many great organizations right. that, you know, Team Human is almost a generic call to arms. Sure. You know, so what do you do? You know, what do you do? Is yeah, it yeah. is it music? Is it farming? Is it economics? And they're all out there. You want to do cooperatives? You don't do Team Human cooperative. Go join Trevor Schultz's platform cooperatives movement. You're into, you know, uh, localism and local fundraising. Do uh, in our backyard. If you're, there, there are so many great Ways join the national the the resource defense council for the environment. Join a, a permaculture organization. A, a community supported agriculture. It's hard for people to wrap their mind around the idea that the answer to scale might not be scale. We could do not scale at scale. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but we can. We yeah. can do not yeah, scale yeah, yeah, at scale. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I look at. I mean, the labor unions were sort of the last great organizations. We're going to use scale against scale. Right. And they are important and they do great things. And But they the, had lots of problems, as we know. They had lots of problems, too. Know, and, and, and in many instances turned into the things that some dark mirror of the thing that they were fighting. Right. I mean, I guess what I'm... Huh. I mean, if I tried, I don't know if I would get to be a leader, <laughs> you know, as such, you know, <laughs> to lead this movement, this thing. But I would participate people want to do something right that's fine and i think this is my way of doing that yeah. you know this is i'm i'm a specialist i know what i'm doing i know how to you know organize these ideas and i mean that's why this book is 100 little things any one of them could be a movement one of your ideas that i find most compelling that came up in google bus and in this one as well is the you're the only person I've tried to articulate this in various ways, and you've art you articulate it much better, and you're the only person I've heard saying it, only other person I've heard saying it. This thing about the idea of the job, the concept of the job, yeah. and, the, and the assumption, the like very deep-rooted assumption that everyone has to have a job that crosses party lines, you know, it crosses sectarian lines. It's just job is good. No job is bad. Right. Obviously, we all need to make a living and survive, but that concept is a very unnecessarily rigid concept. We had to be sold on jobs. You know, we used to just work. You know, we didn't have jobs. The only people who had jobs were slaves, right. you know, back when. But when they made our businesses illegal, which is what they did when they right. outlawed they outlawed small business in the late Middle Ages. We had to go to get jobs. We had to go to the city and get jobs. That's when we started to get the plague. And now a job is better than a gig. <laughs> so now it's almost like, wait, it's devolved from job to gig. Well, I mean, we ended up in this weird thing. I mean, speaking of the gig thing, like we ended up, I mean, and, and, and all of this, a lot of this was sold to us by Silicon Valley. And a lot of it, we sort of ended up reselling to ourselves. But, yeah. you know, this idea that gigs are actually freeing because look, you're not tied to a company. But yes, you have no, now you have no health insurance. Right. Now you have no security. Right. But I make my own right. hours. But Gig is just an extension of, you know, when large companies abandoned the pension and made us all get 401k plans. I mean, that was great for the finance industry because right. now instead of one guy administrating the pension for a thousand workers, now there's a thousand finance guys with individual accounts for each worker who's now, you know, responsible for their own retirement as if that's a good thing rather than, wait a minute. And none of the numbers and figures and charts they give you, none of those are real. They're all, they don't really work like that. It doesn't that. add up, yeah. It doesn't add up. I mean, the S&P, you don't really own the S&P. You go down, you, it doesn't. And yet, like, if it were not for the insecurity, if it were not for all the fear and the very real problems that go along with, you know, the freelance life, like not being able to afford your education or raise children or, you know, it did seem to solve some problems of the job-job situation, which is that you're not tied to a particular office. You have a little more freedom with your time. These are nice things. These are things we would like. I would like to, for the job to be done when I say it's done, not, you know, 
know, to be supervised a certain number of hours or, you know, try to be the one showing up earlier and leaving later than everybody else. In the 1980s, when I got out of college, it was there was an economic crisis going on then of some kind and people couldn't get real jobs. Right. You know, even I went to Princeton and it was like, unless you were, you know, in that track to go into Payne Weber or something through your dad's people, right. you didn't get a job even then. But there was somehow enough slack in the wheel, enough fat in the system that a kid like me who learn how to do WordStar on a K-Pro, you could go into a law office at night and they would pay us like 30 bucks an hour mm. to type the depositions. <coughs> you know, we'd have little headphones on and we would type depositions into a computer. You get 30, 30 bucks an hour. Which is a lot. A in lot. That, at that time, at that time yeah. it'd be like 60 an hour an hour, 50 yeah. an hour an hour. Could you imagine that? So you leave there with like 300 bucks for your night. And you live with three people in an apartment in Brooklyn. So you're really only paying 250 bucks a month rent. Yeah. So that you made your and rent that you week. You don't feel it that hard. Yeah, that's just a little bit of your time. Right. A little bit of and your yeah, energy. so it's two all-nighters a week or whatever. But you got the rest of your time to read Immanuel Kant or right. write your crazy things. That's how I ended up with a writing career. That's how I ended up doing theater in New York. Then I got you got a job mixing sound for an off-Broadway musical. There's 60 bucks an hour. I'm right. going there three, four hours a night mixing sound, listening to stuff. It's like... Damn. You could have a cool cobbled together life. And that's not. And that was pre gig. That, that, that's a reasonable, you know, compromise. Like, it was I, all 1099, yeah. you know, yeah. gigs like, like labor. And it looked like the internet was going to make that better, was going to empower that group. But really, what it did was once they figured it out, I mean, once the, the hirers figured it out, they realized, oh, this is the easiest way we have to disempower all those gig workers. And that, of course, is. Sadly, how it always seems to go with these technologies. Sadly, it's how it always seems to go with these technologies. And that's not the technology's fault. It's the fact that, however you want to look at it, neoliberalism or capitalism, extraction of value from people and places is so embedded. And you can look. I wrote a book called Life, Inc. to look at the process by which that happened. A lot of it happened in Abraham Lincoln's day, mm -hmm. you know, when corporation was given personhood, you know, it was for the railroads to be able to have uh, their right Eminent to- domain. Yeah, and all yeah, that. Yeah. You know, and Lincoln was, uh, he was a railroad lawyer before he was on that side. It's kind of sad that we've reversed course. But the problem is that the corporation is essentially a piece of software and the economy is the operating system. And both of them are being configured to promote one another. You know, a central currency-based bank interest-driven economy and an extractive growth-based corporation. And they're in lockstep. And we've come to look at the world as dominated by the rules of those systems, whereas those rules are not. Those are rules written by people at a particular moment in history, and they don't have to be the rules we live by. And I don't think we have to destroy the entire planet in order to learn that, in order to find that out. Nor that a direct full-on frontal assault against those monopolies is necessarily the most direct path. The system the does work well for what? certain things. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to get local businesses producing iPhones. So there's some things, or cars even, there's some things that are really hard to do without a big system. The problem is when you have a big system, it's too tempting for the people who control that system to use it to disempower all the humans along the way. So the, you embed lots of like super cloud-based digital technologies into automobiles. On the one hand, you could say it's to make them better. On the other hand, it's to make it impossible for a guy with a local garage to service a vehicle anymore. Sure. And you really have to look at if you're going to take a piece of technology into your living ecosystem, what are you doing? And I start to think about these things the way I look at drugs or supplements. You know, Timothy Leary, a, a psychedelics guru, used to say, you know, before you take a drug, look into the eyes of someone on that drug and decide if that's somewhere you <laughs> want to be. <laughs> now, and I would offer the same with any device thing that you're going to put into your life, any app that you're going to install on your phone. Engage with someone. Know what it's about, yeah. Yeah. Know how it affects people. What is this technology for? And think about that before you just 
you know, blindly incorporate it into your personhood. So I want to wind us up with something that I have almost never done on the show, but we had, uh, I have one fan who wrote in who knows about you and oh. just wanted me to ask you a question. So cool. this is from Robert Gustafson. He says, Doug, we are aware of the commercial uses of big data with Amazon leading the way. In contrast, we see our physicians looking at screens and keyboards instead of looking at us, the medical community being on square one with regard to simply assembling data. How can we induce physicians, pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, government agencies, and medical foundations to assemble and make the same use of medical big data that businesses do with the data they collect? The, the easy answer, as long as we're in, you know, big think, there's a big idea, okay. would be that um, by law, all data should be part of a commons. So you can tag your data personally or not, but all of our medical data, all of everything becomes part of a commons. If it's part of a commons, then all of a sudden, the big data extracting companies have lost their business plan because mm -hmm. it's all part of a commons. Everybody owns it, so you can no longer sell it. So all that data extraction, all the nefarious profit-driven data extraction goes away. And the medical research community all of a sudden gains access to all the a data. Wealth of data, right. And you find out, oh, so, you know, smoking and opening doors with left hands and petting a poodle in the same week gets you cancer. It's like, <laughs> who knew? <laughs> you know, or whatever, right, right, whatever right. weird things they find out. Or it's the avocados. It's the avocados. The physician, the family physician left to his or her own devices is probably not going to necessarily want to spend that huge amount of time crunching data that would end up happening at the like NIH level right, or something. Right, it would, yeah. but it would change the profit center too. So now it's not a matter of who owns the data. It's a matter of who's using the data for social good, who's right. actually accomplishing something with it, you know? And then the trick would be, and this is, you know, technology, but the trick would be how to leverage generic data to the service of private data. You know, it's not rocket science, but you can. Right. So you've got your own personal data profile, and then you can run your profile through the collective data and still maintain the privacy integrity of yours. And then someone who's developing technology for doctors is doing the opposite of what they're doing to doctors now. I mean, right now, part of the reason why the doctors are stuck in the machines is the business plans of the giant corporations, exactly. the health right. corporations they're working for, not patient benefit. And the, the object of the game becomes how do we increase the face time of the, the doctor with the patient rather than the uh, screen time of the doctor with uh, and it's not even real data they're using. They're just, it's all insurance. Right, right. Crap. And to the extent to which medicine is using data, how do we, how do we ensure that it's actually benefiting, being right. used to our benefit? I mean, we, we have a medical system now where my wife's pharmacy prescription costs more if I pay the copay of the insurance than it costs if I just buy it without the insurance. Oh my God. <laughs> so what, what happened there? What happened there? You know, it's because CVS and Caremark are the same company and the incentives are all so screwy that my copay is more than the thing costs. So I just buy it then. I just buy it. You yeah. know, go to Costco and buy it without the, uh, without the insurance. The odd thing is, again, weird incentives. If you have a whole, you know, you're allowed to take certain medical expenses off on your taxes. I'm not allowed to take it off the taxes if I buy it myself through Costco for cheaper. Oh, I can wow. only apply it to my taxes if I spend more by paying the copay because I showed that I applied for the insurance on it. So then imagine what the doctor is dealing with in terms of the incentives and disincentives in terms of their time yeah. and their company and all that. So really what we're looking at is the business plans driving the cart. And that's ass backwards. The market and money were created to get humans the things they wanted as they want it. And our market and money and corporations are now serving the opposite purpose. And 
that's really part of what Team Human is arguing for, is like, wait a minute, we've, we've got to, don't have to go back to caveman times to say, how do we make this serve people rather than hurt them? What do we care about first, which is should be us and our well-being and our collective right. well-being. Yeah. Right. And the system <laughs> is stacked right now to give, you know, billions of dollars to the billionaires who eventually realize this is stupid. And even a Mark Zuckerberg or a, a Warren Buffett or a Bill Gates say, oh, so now, you know, we're going to give back 99% of what we earned. You know, so what does that mean? It means pumping it back into the system somehow? The you same can't. system that's been created and that right. sort of perpetuates the same Once system. Once you extract all the life out of the top out of the topsoil, it's really hard to just inject it back in there. Well, thanks, Bob Gustafson, for that question. Yeah. And Douglas Rushkoff, thank you so much for, for your time and your thoughts here on Think Again. Thanks. And uh, the book is Team Human, and you'll be talking about it on your podcast. You'll be traveling around to yeah, various cities. Yeah, New York, San Francisco, and Boston. And you can go to teamhuman.fm to see all where I'm going to be and Very come cool. out and, and let's just say hey. Yeah, come come see Doug and say hey. Is Doug okay or are you, are yeah, you a strictly a Douglas guy? I'm more a Douglas. Doug feels a little bit like a golfer or something. Okay, okay. So I'm more of a Douglas. Say hi to Douglas Yeah, wherever wherever he may be. It seems obvious to me that whatever our particular interests, it just shouldn't be as hard as we make it to agree upon certain basic things that make life good. Time with friends, a sense of purpose, individual liberty, and peace of mind. Lots of ways to get there, but making these things available to all of us needs to be the priority. So in that sense, I for one am definitely on Team Human. That's it for the show. Please rate or review us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. We'll be back next week with more thought-provoking fun, and I hope you can be here too. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.